Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a podcast and podcast show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from thousands of successful individuals from around the world. I'm your host, Ashutosh Garg, and today I'm delighted and privileged to welcome a very, very senior professional from Chicago, USA, Asfa Malik. Asfa, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Asfa is the founder and CEO of Growth Minded Consulting. She's the leadership consultant to CEOs and business leaders to drive inclusion from hiring to inspiring. She's an award-winning talent development leader with a strong background in sales, learning, and strategy. And she's an author of several articles. So uh, Asfa, before we start talking about growth-minded consulting, tell me about your journey in brief. Well, my journey uh, basically started in consumer packaged goods. Mm -hmm. I spent years at one company mm -hmm. and we sent data to uh, companies around the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, I spent first my first half of my career in sales. And then I spent the second half of my career, which I feel like that's where my career really took off mm -hmm. is in learning and development. Wow. And okay. so that's kind of like where I've spent most of my time career-wise in corporate. Terrific. And let's now come to growth-minded consulting. Tell me about what you do here and what was your motivation to start this? Well, I, I started it mainly because, so when you're running a global learning in, uh, team mm -hmm. and you're always looking for programs, there are vendors that, that mm -hmm. you work with. Mm -hmm. And there was always something missing when it came to the vendors, Correct. whether was, uh, you know, this is my off-the-shelf program. You have to buy it this way. And if you want to customize it, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that there was a problem that I could solve. Mm -hmm. And so when I left uh, corporate, it was basically after 25 years spending it at one company in one industry, I really wanted to be able to branch out. And mm -hmm. I was also spoiled. So I thought that every company had a robust learning and development team when mm. really and so i knew that there was something that i could do there wow. and personally i was looking for growth mm. i was looking to expand my knowledge i'm someone who never stops learning i have that growth mindset and mm. so when i start to feel like i'm not growing anymore that's when i need to move wow. and so that's really my motivation for starting this and i wanted to be fabulous. able to solve the problem it's fabulous and you know when i was preparing for this conversation and reading about you, you say that change takes a thoughtful and long-term approach. Yeah. Um, help me understand what you mean. And if you can share an example, that'll be wonderful. Sure. So, you know, you've heard all sorts of sayings, change takes time. And it is so true because when you think about any type of change, there is a strategic component to it. There's a reason why we have to have that change, mm -hmm. but what people start to what people stop remembering or don't don't necessarily think through is the emotional impact on that change mm. of people that are impacted or affected mm. by that change. Mm. And so when you are implementing any type of a change, you've got to be able to think of the short term as well as the long term. What mm. is the impact? Are people gonna stay or people gonna leave mm. when you're thinking about it within an organization? So if you think about um, the summer of 2020 here in the United States, yep. that was a time of racial awakening. Mm. We saw companies uh, immediately jumping to, we need to hire more diversity. Mm -hmm. And I'm a chief diversity officer. Mm -hmm. That was that was a 
that was one of those knee-jerk reactions. Mm. Because when you hire diversity, you can see it immediately. Mm. That instant gratification. Correct. But if they had taken a, a longer-term approach, mm -hmm. hiring for diversity is a part of it, but it's not mm. where you start. Mm. Because when you hire all of those diverse candidates, whether it's gender or race or even the abilities, you are... are are fixing that short-term problem, but you're not really thinking about the retention and mm. retention is that long-term effect. Correct. So you're bringing in all of these diverse candidates, but how long are they going to stay? Because mm. you have anything to fix in-house. Mm. And so a long-term would be thinking about retention, thinking about the systems, thinking mm. about the way that we promote and advance people in their careers. Mm regardless of color, think, thinking about removing that bias that we may have. Mm. And so that takes time. And so, and it's not just a chief diversity officer that comes mm -hmm. in, mm. it. not on one person's shoulders, it is on everyone's shoulder. Mm. Well said, well said. So let's talk a little bit about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. The whole world's talking about it. And I think because, as a result of the pandemic, much more is now being talked about, as you just mentioned. Let me start by asking you, what, in your opinion, are some of the inequity challenges being faced by women and minority leaders in the world? Well, there are a lot of them. Yep. So when you think about, let's just talk about women in mm -hmm. general. So removing any intersectionality, just mm -hmm. gender. Women are assessed differently. Mm -hmm. We are typically overlooked. Mm. We are disrupted in meetings. We're silenced. We're given feedback that's very personality-based versus uh, quantitative um, or qualitative, sorry. Mm. Uh, held back in our careers, no matter how hard we work, we have to have many more credentials than our counterparts in mm. the male gender. Mm. And so we're tested, we're quizzed, we're, we're held to di these different standards. Mm. That's women in general. Mm. Then add in intersectionality, whether mm. it's your race, whether it is your age, we are then held to even more standards. Mm. And I feel that in general, women are held back. We have so much to offer. Correct. And when you look at companies that are led by women, mm. when you look at companies that have a, a majority or a larger portion of women, mm. uh, in the organization, you bring in some of the more softer skills, whether it's empathy or being vulnerable right. and creating that sense of belonging and that that safety that employees need to be mm. able to come and do their best jobs and not worry about, am I saying the wrong thing? Mm. So I think that women in general around the world uh, have been held back. And I, and I feel like it's our opportunity and it's our time to shine. And I'd like to be able to be a part of that well, and absolutely. help. Absolutely. And I completely agree with what you're saying. I've, you know, I've often said in all the businesses that I have run, you know, uh, the work ethics of women is significantly better uh, than uh, a lot of my male colleagues. So uh, I completely agree with you. But as far, you know, there is a lot of talk about inclusion. Uh, there's a lot of talk of diversity. Um, and yet when I speak to a lot of board members and in, in many countries, including in my country in India, there is a law which says one third of board members have to be women. Um, 
women are being given a place in the boardroom, but they're not necessarily being included in the discussions. I'd love to get your perspective on, is something really happening or is there a lot of talk? Well, I do think that there is a lot of talk. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're talking about being on boards, when mm. women are on boards. Mm. Yes, there's a lot of new regulations and uh, guidelines mm. that are being put in place. Mm. But when the reality comes in and uh, boards are questioned as to why don't you have more women on your boards, mm. that's when they turn around and they say, well, you we couldn't find anyone qualified to be mm. on the board. Mm. And I can say just in my network, I could give you probably 50 names of women that are ready to be on those boards. Mm. But again, that goes back to what I said before, we're held to different standards. Mm. You know, one of the things that I do in my practice is I've just, um, I've just completed a, a board readiness program. Mm -hmm. So fine, if you say that we're not ready, let me help you be ready. Mm. At least have that certification, at least have the ability to say that I've gone to a class or I've mm. gone to a workshop that has helped me prepare. Mm. Whether it's putting my board roadmap together or picking out or, or creating my resume, my board resume, or even that biography that I need to share. At mm. least we start thinking about our accomplishments and we can start talking about it. And I think that this is also where there's, um, you know, there's differences in genders the obvious ones, but then some of the unobvious ones, mm -hmm. which are, we don't tend, women don't necessarily talk about all of our accomplishments Correct. because again, we're told, well, you're talking too much about yourself. Mm. And uh, we see our male counterparts do that and it's not seen that way. It's like, oh, wow, look how accomplished he is. <laughs> but we don't get the same treatment. Correct. And so we have to, we have to our women need to be able to feel the confidence to be able mm -hmm. to share that. Look at what I've done. Even when I put my own uh, bio together, do I want to say that I won an award? Yes, I do want to say mm -hmm. that I won an award mm -hmm. because I'm very proud of that accomplishment, yep. proud of what I've done. And I want to be able to share that. And so making sure that we are truly making space for women in mm -hmm. the boards, because mm -hmm. if you look at, if you just look at the number of women in, in the U.S., 51% of us are women, mm. a population, yep. and yet only 20% of us have board seats. Mm. We really should have 51% of the board, seat, board mm. seats. Mm. And if you bring in intersectionality and you look at race, you know, women of color make up 20% of the United States population, and yet mm. we only have about 4% of wow. the board seats. Wow. There's a big discrepancy there. Those are startling and, numbers. I agree exactly. with you. But... Uh, Tell me, as for where does accountability lie for uh, ensuring a diverse and inclusive uh, organization? It, it lies with everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that there's anyone that is not accountable. Uh, I can easily say, well, I didn't get that board seat because I'm a woman. Mm. Well, what's my accountability in not getting that board seat? Mm. Did I try hard enough? Did I talk about it? Did I prepare? Mm. Do I have the right skills? Mm. Did I go after a board seat that I wasn't even prepared for? Yeah. And from the leadership, you know, everyone outside of me, mm. uh, we have to make space and we have to give us an opportunity. And this is where bias can creep in. Mm. And bias, if you're looking for a board seat on a technology, uh, in a technology company, mm. uh, primarily in the, in the technology world, mm. it's, it's men, right? Mm. 
And so we go with what we're comfortable with. We go with what we know, what we're familiar with. And so that's where you have to break your own bias and say, well, wait a second, who are we not speaking to? Mm. Because, you know, I'm looking at my board and it's all white men or it's Mm. all Indian men. Why don't we have more women? Let's go out and make an effort. Mm. So that's why I feel like accountability is everywhere. Mm. Very interesting. And yet, you know, I've spoken to many corporate leaders and uh, the, the CEOs tend to believe that Accountability is that of the CHRO because he or she can't find enough people. You're saying there are many, many people available. What are your thoughts? Well, I spent 13 years in HR Mm -hmm. and I worked directly for a global head of HR. Mm -hmm. And we in HR cannot solve all of those problems. We just cannot. Mm -hmm. And when you you start talking to people within HR, uh, sure, they're their message to leadership is that we couldn't find anyone. Well, let's dig a little bit deeper into that. They did find people, mm-hmm. but your leaders said, well, no, they're not qualified. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's all these tests that are happening uh, around the world where we remove the name on a resume mm-hmm. and we just put the qualifications. And guess what? Look mm-hmm. at all the women that they found. Look at all the people of diverse backgrounds that mm-hmm. they found mm-hmm. that they were not looking at because our names are different. If you can't pronounce a name, oh, I don't want to look at that resume. Mm. So there, there is that bias. And that's why I do feel that it is the accountability that everyone holds some sort of accountability when it comes to that. It cannot rest on the shoulder of one person, whether it is that chief diversity officer or the head of HR. Mm. The head of HR is responsible for putting the programs and the the systems in place. Mm. But really when it comes down to the hiring decisions, who's making that decision? It's not HR, Mm. it's the business leaders. Well said, well said. Uh, My next question is on culture, you know, and you live in a country which is incredibly diverse culturally. Um, And yet culture seems to have an impact on diversity, equity and inclusion because of societal pressures, what elders may say, et cetera, et cetera. I'd love to get your perspective on how does culture impact DEI? Well, culture and DEI, it's a chicken or the egg. Correct. You know, I think that they work together. Mm. Uh, culture sets your retention numbers. Culture sets Uh, how people talk about your company, how Mm. people talk about a specific leader, even within an organization. Mm. And so culture is very, very important. In fact, I I feel like it is the core when it comes to your leadership, when Mm. it comes to employee engagement, when it comes to those retention numbers, and when it comes to your actual brand. Your your podcast is the brand called You. Mm. Uh, It's the brand called Culture. Mm. It's uh, the company the company's culture is what drives the brand. Mm. You can say, and you can have the best logo. You can say all the right words. You can put all the right data out there, Mm. but what are people saying about your company? And that's why one of the biggest uh, metrics that HR and companies use in terms of, you know, is this a place where people want to work is the net promoter score, Mm. which is, would you recommend your company to others? Mm. And if the number is high, that's great. Mm-hmm. But if the number is low, I don't know if I want to work for that company. Mm. I do a little bit of digging. So 
are you getting the best talent just because of the way that people are talking about your brand? Very interesting. My next question to you, Asfa, is on, on technology. And technology seems to be creating new challenges for DEI on, on two different fronts. The first one being the divide between the haves and the have-nots, which is going to result in more challenges of uh, diversity and the di increasing divide between the young and the old. Right. I'd love to get your thoughts on how these will be handled. Well, you know, I think that we play a game when it comes to technology. You know, it's our friend. Look at us. I'm sitting in the U.S. You're sitting in, I think, in India. Yeah. And and because of that, we're able to connect mm. through technology. Correct. Right. Yep. So it definitely plays a huge role mm. in just the world. And then when you start to think about it from a DEI perspective, mm -hmm. uh, DEI, again, can be a connector as well as a divider. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about Wi-Fi, if you think about like just a Wi-Fi connection, 5G mm -hmm. around the world, mm -hmm. who can afford that? And so I think about my own home country. And, you know, my parents were born, both born in India. Mm -hmm. My mom's side migrated to Pakistan and my father's side stayed in India. Mm -hmm. And I think about when I go back home and I see such a, a divide, a socioeconomic divide, mm -hmm. there, there are definitely the haves and the haves not, okay. have not. And when you think about the have nots, how are they going to get a connection? Mm -hmm. um, they're living in these small, you know, uh, small homes that they're thinking more about making sure that there's food on the table for their kids and not yep. necessarily Wi-Fi. Mm. And so one of the things that we saw during this whole pandemic is that we uncovered that there are so many people that don't even have the basics that we're used to mm. I can't live without internet. I mean, the first question that I ask when I check into a hotel or go anywhere is what's the Wi-Fi password. Right. And uh, can you imagine going home and not having that? So there, there's definitely going to be that divide. Mm. And then when you think about it from a young and an old perspective, technology changes every single day. Correct. And you was born into the world of internet. Mm. They don't know a world where we didn't have access to yep. each other immediately, mm. uh, where we didn't have cell phones. I, my generation, I'm a Gen Xer. I grew up without the internet. But in my 20s and my 30s, that's when the internet boom happened. And cell phones, everyone's got a cell phone. We are always connected. And we're able to adapt. Our mm. young generation, of course, they were born into it. This is all, that's all they know. Yep. But I think about my mother. My mother is, you know, a much older. And, you know, she's never even bought anything online because she mm. refuses her credit card on mm. any website. Meanwhile, mm. my credit card is floating everywhere. Mm. And I have to, you know, get a new credit card every uh, few months just because of uh, hacking. Mm. But, you know, they're not as quick to adapt. Now, my mother does have the latest and greatest iPhone. Mm -hmm. But is she, is she able to use all of the technology that is actually in her hands? No, mm. she uses her phone and WhatsApp. Mm. So, you know, there's definitely going to be a divide. And that's why we have to be able to help each other. Correct. Well learn said. It. Well said. What a great response. Asfa, now let me move to your writings. Um, you write a lot of articles. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you write on and uh, where do you publish these? So I, uh, I write articles mainly on things that are around L&D. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like Training Magazine, 
chief learning officer. Mm-hmm. I've been part of that where I talk about the value of L&D. Mm-hmm. So a moment ago, you talked about how, you know, the the accountability lies on the head of the CHRO. Yep. And, uh, and I think one of the things that I feel coming from L&D is that the value of L&D does not just rest on the the head of L&D. Mm. It rests on the shoulders of all of our leaders. Mm. And we have an or uh, an obligation mm. to create that value, right. help right. them understand the benefit. Mm. I, I don't even see L&D as just another team or another department within or embedded within HR. Mm. It's actually a benefit. If you think about some of the questions that candidates ask in terms of what are my career opportunities? Uh, what kind of onboarding will there be? What kind of development will I have over the course of my journey at this company? Mm-hmm. Those are questions that they ask because they're thinking about it from a long term. They're not just looking at it from this is my job. Mm-hmm. And so I write a lot of articles to help L&D elevate mm-hmm. and understand. And you know, when you think about it from a business perspective, uh, ROI, return mm-hmm. on your investment. Yeah. Um, L and D is a cost center. Mm. Cost money. There's the technology that we need to have. There's the people that we need to have. There's the travel, um, and in some cases, there's some really great lunches, but they're all expenses. Mm. So, how can we align ourselves with the business? How can I say that because of my training class, mm-hmm. we're able to achieve this revenue? It's very difficult. It's not an easy thing to do. And there's really not a lot of metrics. Mm -hmm. So I give ideas on how we can leverage other data points. Mm -hmm. So client satisfaction, employee engagement, these are all data points that we have access to, Mm -hmm. whether whether we are in HR or outside of HR. Mm -hmm. We still have access to a lot of that. I read all of those comments and Mm -hmm. I take a look at what do our clients say. Our Mm -hmm. clients are saying that my team does not, or my, you know, my, my uh, client team doesn't have this specific skill. Oh, well, that's how I can then justify asking for more. So I like to share that with other L&D leaders. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I love sharing my thoughts on LinkedIn and mm-hmm. I publish a lot on LinkedIn mm-hmm. uh, simply because I have a network and I have a platform that I can share ideas. I can help people develop and I can mm-hmm. also help leaders kind of leverage their own L&D teams. Fabulous. Thank you. Great response. And my last question you asked, and this is for the many, many people who will listen to our conversation. Based on your own amazing journey from the corporate world to consulting to uh, becoming a DEI expert and doing so many different things, what would you say are three lessons you would want our viewers and listeners to take away from your learnings and from our conversation? Sure. Well, um, I think the first one is hold yourself accountable. Mm-hmm. You're not achieving yeah. the the growth or the career that you want. Yeah. Yourself, what am I doing to hold myself back? Mm. Because the first thing that we want to do is blame others, right? And so, well, I didn't get that promotion because they didn't ask me the right questions. Well, take take a step mm. back, hold yourself accountable. Mm. And I would also say that if you, you know, thinking about the world of DEI, if you see an injustice, mm. say something, mm. speak up to the people who cannot. So that's one thing. Um, the second is leave people better 
than mm-hmm. you've yeah. a simple act of kindness, yeah. a smile, a compliment yeah. can go a long way because we don't know what people are going through. Yeah. We see them on screen in a box uh, or we see them in person and they smile, but you have no idea what they go home to. Mm. So leave people better than when you found them. Mm. And then the third is, and this is something that I'm very passionate about. And that is when you get there, turn around and help those behind you. Mm. I have been the only in a room so often, the only woman, the only woman of color, and it's lonely. Mm-hmm. And so when I get there, I like to turn around and I dedicate about eight to 10 hours a month on mentoring women wow. because I want to see a legacy. And I have a niece that is going to enter the workforce in about 10 or 11 years. Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure that I did something to make it better for her. And she didn't have to deal with the same things that I had to. How wonderful. And on that note, as far your three amazing lessons, hold yourself accountable, speak about any injustice that you see leave people better than you found them. And the third one is help those behind you. That is such a powerful comment you just said, help those people behind you. Thank you so much for speaking to me. Thank you for talking to me about your journey, about growth mind in consulting, about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and your amazing thoughts on so many different aspects of DEI. Thank you also for speaking to me about everything that you write. Thank you again for speaking to me and good luck to you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Brand Called You videocast and podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website, www.tbcy.in, to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called you.